1: Because we're already doing it, all while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com wonder. This is the Roy Green
2: Show podcast.
0: Matthew DeGrud is already 10 months after being declared not criminally responsible in the killing of five young people in Calgary, being directed toward privileges being restored. The medical board wants to see him have the opportunity to go for walks on the property of the psychiatric facility where he's located, being held, with two um, individuals accompanying him, and then one, and then none, and there's no fencing. Does this sound familiar? Does this sound like something we've been talking about for years with Carol Dedelli who has fought so hard to make the not criminally responsible designation not one that means just after a few months of psychiatric assistance, you're deemed to be well under control, you're taking your meds, and so therefore, you should be released. It's not comfort zone for anybody. It's not a comfort zone for the five families. It's definitely not a comfort zone for Carol. Carol, thank you for taking the time. You You keep trying so hard to make this change that NCR is dealt with as it should be and I know you've communicated with the families of the young people they are aged 21 to 27, killed by Matthew DeGroote in Calgary. They are now experiencing what you experienced as they confront a system which is intent on releasing the killer of these five who promises that he'll take his meds when he's released. What's your, what's your immediate reaction to that, Carol?
3: Disgust. <clears throat> I'm absolutely disgusted that with, with our system and the way it does this um 10 months after being deemed ncr to be looking at expanded privileges already that's ridiculous i i have been in communications with the family and i have forewarned them to prepare themselves that in our case every time whatever the treatment board was recommending is exactly what um convincely obtained. Um, and it was ridiculous. They spent, I don't know, $400,000, 500000 to upgrade security at the facility housing him, which did does not have a fence, etc. But they upgraded uh, security. Exactly how? I don't know. And then four months later, reduced the amount of su- uh, supervision that he required. So... I, I feel horribly for this family and I, for all these families, and I've warned them to be prepared that, that the uh, treatment team will, will likely be successful in, in their quest to obtain more freedoms, and it will only continue to get worse every year. Um, anybody that knows one thing about mental illness knows that it can be managed with medication, but not cured. And in this country, there is no law that requires these types of uh, deranged killers to treat their illness, that to me is—I am—it's mind-boggling.
0: It's worse. And, it's worse. Yeah. No, go ahead. I'm sorry.
3: No, but I—I I, I mean, all of our politicians seem to be more concerned with what's happening everywhere else in the world, and this is continuing to happen here. And I can tell you, from the victim's standpoint, the victims' families, we are not feeling any sense of justice, any sense of safety. Um, you know primarily the, the, the grasp that they have on reality is so tentative and can be can be completely upset by even a change in their medication and we're supposed to take their word that they're going to take it that didn't work the first go-round or the second go-round or the third go-round i think vince lee was seen in three different provinces by three different um medical systems that's another big issue. Why is it different in every province? It's, it's covered under the provincial system. So trying to navigate the waters of who you even speak to is
0: difficult. And Carol, Global News reports that the forensic psychiatrist dealing with DeGroote agrees that if he again were to become psychotic, there would be significant threat of relapse if he doesn't take his meds, which, of course, nobody's going to be checking when he's released.
3: Well, this is the same thing that they said about Vince Lee, though. They, they, they stated in court that there is no way that they could accurately predict the future behavior of any individual. So how come a deranged killer who couldn't make the correct choice the first time around gets to make that or fail to make that choice a second or a third or a fourth time around? That, I can't believe this is still happening.
0: It's also interesting that DeGroote says he's very sorry for what he did, and one mother, Rhonda Lee Rathwell, replied that if he's truly sorry for killing his five victims, he should voluntarily commit himself to be institutionalized for the rest of his life.
3: I would say I feel the same way, but if you're going to wait for somebody to... Vo- kind of like asking somebody to stand in front of a cannonball. Who's going to volunteer to do that? Yeah. If they're going to offer you... if 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 currently... It's your choice to either stay in where you are or, or go a free person. What are you going to do? Of course, they're sane enough to make that choice.
0: Is there any knowledge at all of where Vince Lee is? Has he actually been released yet?
3: Oh, yeah. He's, he, he, has had, he has received an absolute discharge. Right. I,
0: I know that. But so, the, so there was no, no temporary holding on to him for a few no, weeks longer no, or a month longer. No, He's gone. No,
3: no, nothing. No, nothing. So we don't it's know nothing. where he is. He's in Winnipeg.
0: He's in Winnipeg. Uh,
3: to, to my knowledge, but I mean, now that he's a free person, he can pretty well go anywhere he wants. He can cross any border. He, I know his plan was to travel back to China um, for a visit with his family and then return here. Um, yeah, free. He's free to do that. He, he doesn't have a criminal record that would prevent him from. And I believe he's staying in this province because he will still qualify for, for care or whatever, Right. Somebody's paying his bills, correct? That got, that's got to be us.
4: Got
0: to be.
3: And 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 so in he's also upgrading his uh, his education. I can't afford to put my own kid through school, my youngest one, and yet we're paying taxes to provide an education and a home and everything else for for the man that killed my other son. I'm sick about this,
0: Carol. There's obviously still a great deal that needs to be talked about, a great deal that needs to be done, and politicians need to be reminded. Parents, by the way, the parents of the five uh, young people from Calgary, want f- their fellow Canadians to send uh, communications to the Alberta Justice Minister, Kathleen Ganley, and let let her know how much they object to what's going on. Carol, thank you for taking the time. I'm sorry to have to call on you, on but I know how important this issue is. Absolutely.
3: Thanks for okay. the opportunity,
0: Roy. Okay. We'll talk All again. Right? Thanks, Carol. Yeah,
3: bye-bye. All the best.
0: Bye-bye.
2: You're listening to The Roy Green Show, weekends from 2 to 5 on AM 900 CHML.
0: The uh, 100th anniversary of the Battle of Vimy Ridge. had started on April the 9th, 1917, and 100 years later, the ceremonies were taking place in France to honor the men who fought in that battle and the men who won the battle. Now, there's some conjecture about whether or not that battle really was the backbone for what eventually formed Canada. Um, I'm going to put it to you this way. Some historians say no, but I have to think that battles such as Vimy Ridge, whether they are specifically and definitely and solely responsible for creating the emotion that drives a nation forward, or whether they're part of the equation, it really doesn't matter because it's all part of... Of the same accomplishment. Now, have a listen to Global News, Jeff Semple, in France today.
1: Well, you can hear there the flyover from the French Royal Air Force concluding the ceremony here at Vimy Ridge. More than 20,000 people gathered here, including the Canadian Prime Minister Justin Trudeau, French President Francois Hollande. And the heir to the throne, Prince Charles, was also here along with his sons, Princes William and Harry, along with thousands of other Canadians, a sea of red and white here, veterans, their families, and schoolchildren right across the country. There are, in fact, almost as many Canadians here as there were exactly 100 years ago today when... 30,000 Canadian soldiers were tasked with retaking Vimy Ridge. It was the first time in history that all four Canadian divisions fought in a single formation, what Brigadier General Alexander Ross called the birth of a nation. But the victory came at a heavy cost. More than 3,500 Canadians were killed in that battle. The single Deadliest, bloodiest day in Canadian military history. Their names now engraved on the Vimy Ridge memorial here. Based on the crowds, the thousands who have turned out today, it seems certain that the, their memory and what they accomplished here a hundred years ago will endure. Jeff Semple, Global News, Vimy Ridge.
0: I'm so glad uh, that we that we care enough to still honor these particular days and these particular occurrences historically, that we still care enough and honor it enough. But it happens on specific days, on certain days, on certain anniversaries, certain years, the centennial, the sesquicentennial. Whatever an event happens is on a specific anniversary. And a number of years ago, uh, when I was uh, working the network show in the '90s, there was a um, there was a major effort underway, and I'm trying to remember what the anniversary was. Maybe it was the 50th anniversary or 60th anniversary of D-Day, and because it was that specific anniversary, the whole world was engaged. Princes and queens and kings and prime ministers and major celebrities showed up in uh, in Normandy on uh, Juneau Beach, and on the uh, on the on the other beaches that were used to. Attack the Germans and, and get inland and start the, the beginning of the end of the Second World War. And it was a well-done special commemoration on that date. And then the next year, on June the 6th, nothing. Nothing. And I remember going into the studio and saying, I remember a year ago today, everybody was talking about June the 6th. Everyone. Everyone. All the uh, media coverage was was intense. An immense. Today, nothing. And my phone lines started to line up. Ring. One, two, I didn't ask a question. Three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten phone lines. All of them. And all people wanted to do all morning was talk about their family members in the war and talk about the value and the importance of remembering what happened and honoring those who fought. So it's fine, and it's important that we recognize the anniversaries once in a while. Let's also remember in the non-anniversary years, because they're just as important. It's 100 years, though. It's a, a significant, very significant anniversary. Mike Luschiavo is a uh, teacher at um, Ancaster Meadows Elementary School in the Hamilton area. And Mike has, for many years, taught his students the entire student body at the school to value military accomplishments, military victories, and the historically important military victories, and specifically to also particularly honor Remembrance Day and this uh, 100th anniversary of the Vimy Ridge battle as well. Mike, uh, you're a special teacher. We live in a country where I think in four provinces it's absolutely not mandatory to teach Canadian history at all, and yet here you are making it your mission to teach our, your kids about the value of the accomplishments of the Canadian military in not only winning wars, but in fact safeguarding our way of life. Thank you for what you do.
5: And thank you very, very much.
0: And, and how interested are the kids? When you start out, when you begin, on the first day, when you start to talk to them about whether it's uh, uh, Vimy Ridge or, or Remembrance Day, how interested are they at the beginning? And by the time you get to the end and you have the big events of the school, how interested are they then?
5: Well, I you know, talk about uh, this is a great country. Um, you know, freedom, as you said before, freedom is not cheap. It came at a high cost. And uh, all you out there, you know, look around, and I say to many of my students in grade 8, those people that volunteered back in World War One, World War Two, were not much older than you. And you look at this, and says they went off to war knowing to pay the ultimate sacrifice. And it says, let's look back in history. Let's look back in time and try to picture uh, yourself in the shoes of those, of those young men and women back in the First World War signing up, Second World War signing
0: up. Right. And, and how did they respond? What did, when you're talking about grade eight, how, how old are the kids? 13?
5: 13 and 14. 13
0: up. and 14 years old.
5: Well, so, in the case of the history, so I preface, I say when I do my history unit, I says, you know, Canada was created in 1867. However, many people define a nation, and that definition of a nation came for Canada in 1917 at a famous battle. I'm going to leave it up to you to find what that battle has been or was. And the past week, they've been really engaged, uh, doing a media literacy assignment. They start presenting tomorrow morning. They've been asking questions. In fact, one student even asked me, I said, Mr. Lachauvel, what happened in World War II to the monument? I said, that's a good question. You know, and it was recently on the seat well, on the you know on the news talked about that, and and yeah. she found out about it. And she said, "Can I put that in my presentation?" I said, "Absolutely."
0: So Mike, all engaged. Yeah, Mike. When you when you talk about and you mentioned that these soldiers were not much older than your students are, so they're thirteen, 13, 14 years yeah. of age. Some of these stu- uh, soldiers, quite a few of them, many of them were eighteen or nineteen or, years of age. Or younger. Or even younger. That's yeah. right. Uh, so. When these young people of today look back and they see the photographs or they see video or, or you tell them about what was going on, there's such a, a technological divide oh, yes. between today yeah. and 100 years ago. Yeah. What do they have to say about what 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 lack of technology the soldiers 100 years ago had to live with?
5: Well, I just see them like I say to them, you know, like, back then, this is all you had. You know, you had a rifle and you had some support and, you know, like, I spoke to many of my students. Like when you were told to go over the top, you went over the top. Wow. You know, and uh, you know, basically, uh, you know, you had no choice. You went but many of them were there. They volunteered. I also I often talk about what happened at Ypres, Belgium, in a poison gas attack, and the uh, for the first time, the Canadian troops were exposed to poison gas. And I explained to them, you know, like the mustard gas what it did to the lungs. And there was French Algerian troops along one side who. Who uh, basically panicked and fled, and how the Canadians urinated into their handkerchiefs and held the line. And I'm gonna tell them that story. They say, is that a true story?
0: Our soldiers, our military, really have fought with and served with absolute distinction Very in much. campaign after campaign, and they worry the enemy and they encourage the allies. They, we really have a reputation. Canadians have a reputation for being real war fighters, for the right reason. That's correct. Yeah. For
5: freedom.
0: For freedom? Yep. Hold on, Mike. We're going to come back. Mike Buschivalvo from uh, Ancaster Meadows School in the Hamilton area. I want to talk to him some more about what the kids uh, are learning and how they're responding and what they're reacting and what may have surprised Mike about what he's heard from uh, from some of his students uh, during these discussions about whether it's Vimy Ridge or um, Remembrance Day. And then Kent Morrison is going to be joining us from uh, Global Edmonton the story of the Battle of Brimley Ridge through the eyes and the history and the experience of Joseph Goldie Fairholm of Alberta. It's an incredible story. Stick around, please.
2: You're listening to The Roy Green Show, weekends from 2 to 5 on AM 900 CHML.
0: Michael Chavo is a teacher at Ancaster Meadows School, joins us on The Roy Green Show on the Chorus Radio Network. And Mike makes it a point that all of his students understand and appreciate the special military anniversaries and the special military dates. Today it's the 100th anniversary of Vimy Ridge. Uh, you'll appreciate this uh, tweet I just received from uh, one of our listeners. And it's uh, at Buscott, and uh, he writes, My great-great-grandfather was there, and the Psalm too, mm-hmm. and he was awarded the Victoria Cross. That'd be amazing, wouldn't it, Mike?
5: And you know what, Roy? Some of the students asked me what the Victoria Cross was, and I said, "Well, I'll guide you along." And uh, there's some research here, and they found out what the Victoria Cross was, and sometimes how it is awarded posthumously.
0: And and tell us, please, remind everyone of the significance of the Victoria Cross.
5: Victoria Cross is a bravery a medal, a British uh, medal of bravery, utmost bravery in the line of in the line of fighting line of duty.
0: So you're right. You're uh, risking your life above and beyond doing what you normally would do as a soldier. Yep. You've done something that that your fellow soldiers took particular note of and it made its way up the line and they checked it out and decided there was an exceptional act of bravery and you exactly. received the Victoria Cross. Right. Now you talk about uh, students not necessarily knowing what's what's happening, but what do you as a teacher make of the fact that we live in a country where, and I don't know again what the specific number is, but it's probably four provinces, where teaching Canadian history is not mandatory anywhere through the elementary and the uh, secondary uh, school life experience. What's wrong with that? I mean, from your perspective. My perspective
5: is, uh, after teaching for 32 years, it's always important to learn from our past, to learn from our past to avoid mistakes, to see how in the past history how mistakes have been made and not to recreate those mistakes. To learn about the culture of your country, to be proud of your country, to know how your country was created, and to you know, and to realize that Canada is a country of immigrants. That all these immigrants that came over here had great contributions. I look at the the Aboriginal soldiers uh, watching this morning from Vimy, uh, paying tribute to them. The French Canadian soldiers, all the people. If you look on those. On the list, there are many types of names, and just be proud of what this country did.
0: Do you find that we have enough appreciation? Well, there's not enough appreciation above and beyond the school reality, just in the political spectrum.
4: Uh, I, I wish
5: uh, this country would probably do more, uh, you know, in terms of history to uh, to honor. Um, it's um, brave men in uniform on a regular basis as opposed to when these significant uh, historical dates come along. It would be nice. Yeah.
0: So what happens tomorrow, Mike, at the school with the students for, uh, for Vimy Ridge?
5: Tomorrow morning, my class uh, 8B will begin their presentations, and that starts right at uh, right after opening exercises i will pause with my grade eights tomorrow morning and again i will speak to them about uh, this is a day p- plus one of the battle and we will stand for uh, for a moment of silence in my class after all canada and then we'll begin the presentations and they'll go till about uh, about ten forty.
0: mike thanks for all you do thanks for all you teach the kids because they are going to be taking it with them through life and they will pass it along and if that's the best way and sometimes the the only way to, to uh, remember the stories yep. and remember the accomplishments of our men and women in uniform, then fine.
5: I have an awesome bunch of grade eights this year, Roy. They make me very proud, and I uh, look forward to seeing them tomorrow.
0: Thank you, I appreciate it. Uh, Mike, all the best to you. Uh, take
5: care, Roy. Thanks Mike, you. Again. Michael,
0: Michael Scalvo is a um, teacher at Ancaster Meadows School.
2: You're listening to The Roy Green Show, weekends from 2 to 5 on AM 900 CHML.
0: So, I was uh, scouting around online a couple of days ago, and I got onto our uh, website of our global Edmonton uh, television station, and I found a story that was written by news anchor Kent Morrison. So, I was reading the story, and it's, it's so fascinating because it's a really great insight into the life of one young man who fought for Canada at Vimy Ridge. He fought for Canada at Vimeo Ridge, but he also fought for Canada before and after, and he made it. He also had a diary. The diary had an interesting story of its own. But Kent Morrison joins us on the Roy Green Show on the Chorus Radio Network. And Kent, thank you for the time. And who was Private Fairholme before the war?
6: Well, thanks for having me, Roy. Yeah, it, I, I love the beautifully said intro of, of Private Joseph Goldie Fairholme, who... Uh, Quite the story written down in paper, but quite the story before and afterwards. And he was, uh, he was a soldier uh, who enlisted here in Edmonton. But he, before he got to Edmonton, he, he grew up in England and came to Alberta with his, with his father and his extended family, as many families back then, and quite a lot of brothers and sisters and stepbrothers and stepsisters. And he came to Edmonton uh, as, a, as a young man and actually enlisted. In 1915, with his brother Bert and his father, they all three enlisted at the same time uh, here in Alberta, and all three of them survived the war. Which wow, is incredible as well.
1: That is incredible.
6: Um, yeah, yeah, incredible stuff. They all three, three enlisted. They came back at different times, but uh, uh, the story goes that he and his brother Bert uh, said they were 19 and 18, respectively, when they uh, when they enlisted. Uh, uh, Goldie being the older, uh, but uh, as the story goes, they lied as many people did back then. They were actually younger than they said they were. Uh, so by the time he was writing his diary overseas in 1917, the one that I've read, uh, he was only 20 years old, but already uh, a veteran of a couple of years in the military.
0: You write about his duties at Vimy Region. He was a runner. How did he write about that?
6: Well, it's, it's very interesting. He, You know, yeah, he, that was his his main main job was a runner. So he, he was in the trenches, and, and his job was to deliver messages. Of course, they didn't of radios really back then so he was running in the in the trenches and it, the story goes that his, his stature would made him such a good runner because he was about five five so he was short enough to be running through these trenches and and uh you know he he's very candid in, in his diary um that begins on january 1st um of 1917 there, there's some details in the sort of the uh the uh, pages before the the first this diary each page is dedicated to one day in 1917 and and on that first day, January 1st, he writes about his resolutions, uh, in which he says, uh, my resolutions are much different than they've been in years before, but number one is to kill as many Germans as I can, and number two, I've decided that I'm going to make it home safely from doing my bit. And then the, in the pages that, that followed that, you really get inside his mind, and, and he there's, there's days where he's pretty bitter. He's pretty honest about how things are going. He doesn't like um, being on the trenches or... Uh, the work parties that they had to do he, he doesn't like the politics inside the ranks as well um, and he you know he's he's pretty bitter he talks about um, you know the the officers above him and how he you know disagrees with how the politics of that goes and at one point he's offered uh, stripes he says and and he writes in there and he says I refused because I, I don't like the way the you know things stack up I don't like the added um, I guess the uh, pressure that comes with that and, and the also the, the politics that comes with having these stripes, so I'm just gonna remain the way I am.
0: You know, Kent, it's amazing when as you're describing all of this and, and, and what his experiences are and how he wrote about them. I have to remind myself that this was a teenager who by the time this diary was finished or got to the level at the point where you saw it, um, he was only twenty.
6: That's right, yeah. Just a yeah, kid. He's- He's just a kid he I, you know I was, I was barely in university when I was his age and, and he's on the, on the front lines of this war writing in, in the trenches and and talking about you know he, he writes so eloquently very brief sometimes you know sometimes it's only a line or two there's sometimes uh, pages that go by without any any posts, but you know he, he writes about uh, the gas and it's sometimes it's it's the how casual he is about writing about this gas that really struck me there's one day where he he writes and he's he, all he says is um, a new kind of gas came over today. It, it smells different, almost like uh, tropical, uh, but it still turns your stomach. All of us still got sick. Uh, another day where he writes later on in 1917 where he says, uh, the gas is, is tough today. Uh, I can scarcely scarcely talk. And it's, it's, it's such a casual way of writing, but you think about what he's dealing with every single day. Uh, it really, really strikes you.
0: Did he write at all about the price the Canadians paid at Vimy? Because he was running the trenches, so he would have been just constantly exposed not only to fire from from German troops, but he would have been exposed to his own troops being shot and killed or wounded. That had to be a constant, constant reality for
2: him.
6: Oh, absolutely, yeah. And and in these in these diaries, he you come across these battles. Of course, he was at Vimy Ridge. He, he talks about on this day a hundred years ago. He, he wrote in his diary at five thirty, we began our movement onto R- Vimy Ridge, and he, he describes his his role in in that that day and April tenth um, in the summer in, in about July. He writes about another time where they're they're under attack, and and he talks about hearing a clank in that battle. He he's running and he hears a clank and he looks to his left and his right because you know you're you're responsible for the guys beside you and. He names the guy who he thinks it might have uh, it might have hit, and then he has to keep going. and It isn't until later he says that he looked back once they were away from the front line, and he looked at his helmet, and he said that clank that I heard was a bullet hitting the rim of my helmet, and an eighth of an inch lower. and it, He says the sniper would have got me right between the eyes. <laughs> and he he talks about that. He talks about. Um, you know, other times he, he says, um, "You know, I looked over the the horizon at the other the other trenches, and I can see arms and legs of German soldiers going up in the air as our our artillery um, answers their call from from the morning. So, you know, the the Allied troops, um, their artillery answering the German fire, and him and seeing body parts uh, flying up in the air. So, he talks about he was in Passchendaele as well. He was Passchendaele as well, and." He, he writes a, a very long and eloquent post uh, about Passchendaele, and at the end, he puts uh, an ellipsis, and it's a, and it, this is the most, you know, most descriptive part. He says, "It was hell!" Exclamation mark, and uh, he says, "I will always remember the hell that was Passchendaele." So it, it's it's remarkable to to think of him away from the front lines after these grave and terrible days when. Thousands of lives are lost to be to be writing his own thoughts down in a, in a tiny little diary that would fit inside his
0: uniform. Yeah, so pencil, paper, tiny little diary, nothing complicated, nothing technologically advanced, paper, pencil, and that's it. And a hope that if anything happened to him, if he were killed, somebody would deliver the diary to his, to his family.
6: That's right. In, in the very first page of, of the diary, it says, um, should any kind friend find this on the field of battle please return to Jay Fairholm, who's his mother and listen an address here in Edmonton and then at the very end it says thanks very much
0: so the diary itself had an interesting story too
6: yeah that's right it's it's very interesting to go through it because you um, you get insights of sort of to where he is where he's been traveling throughout Europe there's times where weeks go by without a post or just a single, uh, line, perhaps, uh, it rained today, or, um, we had a work party today. Um, and it, it goes all the way into November and then it stops and, um, it sort of disappears. And in, in fact, it did disappear. There's, it's a total mystery. Now Goldie came back from the war, uh, around 1918. Uh, he lived the rest of his life here in Alberta. Uh, he died and his family never knew about this diary. And it wasn't until, around the time that they began to mark the 100th anniversary of the war beginning uh, that people around the world were thinking back to this war and it was it was as the story goes uh, a guy in Wales who went up into his attic and his, his father had served in World War one and started going through um, his his things his wartime things and he came across this diary that's still written in the front page said if this is found please return to mrs. J Fairholm in Edmonton And this gentleman in Wales looked up that address. The the home isn't here anymore. It's an apartment building now. So he reached out to the local newspaper here for help to try and find um, someone who may be connected to this gentleman who somehow he had found this this diary in in his father's thing. So that will forever remain a mystery, how that diary went from uh, the front lines in 1917 and disappeared for almost 100 years. No one really knows what happened to it until it, it ends up in this... Uh, in this room, in a house in Wales, but it, it gets back to Edmonton, and it gets uh, back to the family. It's now in the hands of Goldie Fairholme's, uh last surviving daughter, Isabel, who lives near Ottawa. She now in her her nineties. Um, but the digital copy of the uh, the diary, which which I got to, to read, which is a real privilege to, to read, uh, got in the hands of a of a digital archivist at UBC who specializes in taking these historical documents and digitizing them and, and so that they can exist on the Internet and be passed around to family. And it's, in fact, family. The the lady who got that diary to digitize is Goldie Fairholme's great, great niece. So she oh. talked about this family connection she had to this historical piece that she's been able to share across the country and really kind of connected. She actually, after my story was, was put online, she said, I got contacted by... A second cousin of mine in Edmonton that I didn't even know was there. and we've already created another connection. So uh, it, oh, you know, a hundred years after he was writing in this diary, a hundred years ago today he was writing about 5:30 in the morning beginning the approach on Jimmy Ridge. It's starting to connect an extended family that still exists across the country.
0: What an amazing, amazing story. And so this little diary has gone from being in his shirt pocket probably, or somewhere in his pack uh and uh then it disappears for decades and then it resurfaces and now it's available to the entire world because you put the story on the internet
6: that's right yeah and there's a military uh, museum here in um in edmonton who is helping they have a copy of that doc that uh that diary as well i was actually just at the ceremony here at city hall in the cenotaph and they have actors who are uh portraying different soldiers who are uh being commemorated on this 100th anniversary and goldie Fairholm is one of them so there's an actor downtown in edmonton right now who is spreading his story partly based by based on this diary which we now can read because uh, his family members have have put it online and yeah if you, if you go to our, to our website the article that i wrote there's uh, I've posted about five or six of, of the uh the pages of his of his diary which is uh it's pretty incredible to read my, my favorite is actually March 21st of 1917, when it looks like he went back retrospectively and he writes, it was on the pages behind that we practiced our now famous victory at Vimy Ridge. So he wrote that perhaps you know in the days or weeks after Vimy Ridge. He went back and made a note that this is when we practiced, this is when we rehearsed that special victory and that's exactly what they did that that's what led to their victory was six weeks of rehearsal and practice before they made that movement on on bimmy ridge and he, he knew even then how important that victory was and he went back and made sure that he marked it in his diary that you know this is what we were doing in these blank pages There's about almost a month of blank pages He went back and marked it
0: what an incredibly rich resource this little diary has proven to be and your story it really caught my attention. I was I was just reading and I was getting more and more involved. I was actually getting emotional. I was I was I was reading and thinking about this is just a kid. This is just a kid going through all of this, and he's so meticulous in his writing, as as are you, Kent. Thank you so much for uh, for sharing this with
6: us. Roy, thanks so much for having me.
0: All the best, Kent Morrison from Global TV in uh, Edmonton. You can find uh, Kent's story on the uh, Global. Uh, Edmonton website.
2: You're listening to The Roy Green Show, weekends from 2 to 5 on AM 900 CHML.
0: James Rosen is the chief Washington uh, correspondent for the Fox News Channel, and I've been a big fan of Mr. Rosen's for many years and um, have an opportunity to speak to him today, and it's been quite a week in, uh, in the United States. James, thank you for taking the time, and I must say, if, uh, if I was going to choose a week to talk to you, this was the best week possible.
7: Well, I'm grateful, Roy, for your kind words and for the chance, finally, belatedly, to call in. And uh, looking forward to uh, communicating with the good people up north. Well, you have us
0: uh, across the country, and we have a lot of American listeners as well. We get calls from Chicago and L.A. and um, New York. It's wonderful what online listening will do, so you get completely different perspectives.
7: My my brother is a proud graduate of McGill University. Well, there you go. And uh, I went up to visit with him. Uh, in Montreal when I was uh, a high school student and had several seminal experiences there, that one week in Montreal, so great fond regards.
0: Well, I uh, I don't doubt it. I grew up in Montreal, and I know what those moments are like. I remember them well. <laughs> James, the, the United States uh, missiles fired at the Assad air base in Syria in response to Assad using the chemical weapons on civilians, including children. Now, uh, President Trump is being generally praised for his actions, but there are those who are suggesting there might have been some sort of collusion between Trump and, and Putin in order to take the pressure off the investigation in the United States as to whether there was any sort of any work uh, behind the scenes between the Putin administration and the Trump campaign, which uh, there's no evidence to that uh, for any of that at this point. But when you look at what the uh, what Mr. President Trump did as far as the returning the uh, or at least attacking the airbase in in Syria is concerned. How does that uh, how does that play? How do you how do you assess that? Is that exactly the right move by the president?
7: Well, of course, we have to narrow down uh, the category in which we're focused. Uh, whether that would be the right military move, the right move for affecting uh, actions on the ground in Syria, or the right move politically here at home, and so forth. With respect to the first part of your question, it's now abundantly clear that Donald Trump couldn't cut himself shaving uh, without somebody alleging collusion with the Russians in the act. Um, I don't think that there's uh, evidence of collusion uh, between the U.S. and Russia in this uh, in this particular military strike beyond the fact that the Trump administration gave Russians, uh, who were apparently active on that very military base, uh, about an hour's notice before the strike commenced. Uh, but in terms of how it's playing, I think you're correct that uh, Broadly speaking, uh, the operation appears, uh, with whatever its limited aims, to have been an actual success, in that the target was struck, no loss of life on the American side, and so forth. It did effectively convey a signal to uh, Bashar al-Assad about uh, U.S. displeasure over uh, his actions on the ground in Syria. And one other fascinating uh, facet of this particular military strike, Roy, is that uh, veteran observers of the presidency could not remember another instance Uh, at least readily, where um, an American commander-in-chief ordered military action of this sensitive nature over in the Middle East, uh, while entertaining on American soil a foreign dignitary of the stature of Chinese President Xi Jinping, who was in Florida uh, to meet with President Trump when the action occurred. And uh, so in addition to whatever messages Mr. Trump hoped to send to Bashar al-Assad and Vladimir Putin, It was also clear to many observers that he was using this occasion, which he certainly could have delayed another 48 hours if he so desired, uh, to send a message to the Chinese. Uh, The big-picture message from uh, Mr. Trump would appear to be to other states who maintain client states, such as Russia does with Syria, or as China does with North Korea. uh, In essence, uh, don't put us into a box where we feel we have to act unilaterally. Uh, It was interesting to see Nikki Haley, the U.N. ambassador, uh, warn about 48 hours before the action took place at the U.N. Security Council publicly, that, the, uh, that if the Russians didn't rein in the Syrians, the U.S. may see fit to take unilateral action, uh, and the Trump administration delivered on that threat.
0: Is there any sense of how the uh, Chinese president responded to all of this happening around him, and suddenly during dinner the president of the United States turns to him and, and, and says, by the way, we're, uh, we're attacking Syria right now. Um, the the Chinese are very difficult to read, but has there been any sense of how, how they're reacting to uh, to what took place? While the uh, Chinese president was uh, was at um, well, they were notably
7: quiet. Where other countries were um, issuing statements uh, Friday morning, such as the British or the Saudi Arabia, the Kingdom of Saudi Arabia, which called this a courageous decision. Right uh, from those countries from which condemnation could be expected, condemnation swiftly came from the Iranians, from the Russians, but the Chinese were noticeably silent. Uh, This entire summit was already uh, a very uncertain prospect for the Chinese, who were used to tightly scripted summits. Indeed, in most of the major uh, jobs at the various federal agencies here in Washington, whether it's the Department of State or the Department of Defense, uh, Central Intelligence Agency and others, uh, some of the key jobs relating to Asia have remained unfilled, the usual interlocutors of the Chinese. Uh, So they were very much on edge as they approached this summit to begin with. Uh, precisely because uh, of President Trump's campaign rhetoric, uh, his own mercurial personality, and the absence of key staffers. So uh, to be informed that by the way, while you're visiting here, we're launching kinetic military action in the Middle East, uh, again, it, it can only make a certain impression on the Chinese uh, at a minimum uh, that uh, Donald Trump is remains a kind of unpredictable figure and one that uh, it's going to take some time for them to reckon with fully. Is it
0: particularly difficult to be a reporter dealing with the Trump administration vis-a-vis that of Barack Obama?
7: Well, you ask a particular individual uh, who had a singular experience with the Obama presidency as a working member of the press. I remember. uh, With me having been designated uh, secretly in 2009 a criminal co-conspirator in an alleged violation of the Espionage Act uh, in connection with my reporting on North Korea's nuclear weapons program. I didn't learn about that, uh, like the rest of the world, until four years after the fact, in mid-2013, when the Washington Post broke that story. It marked the first time in American history that a working reporter had been designated a criminal uh, by the federal government simply for doing his job. Not even Neil Sheehan of the New York Times, who in 1971 published the Pentagon Papers, 7,000 classified documents tracing American involvement in Vietnam, was thusly designated by the Nixon administration. Uh, it briefly made yours truly, Roy, the number one trending subject on Twitter, outpacing my fellow celebrities Justin Bieber and Taylor Swift. <laughs> and um, and uh, the ensuing controversy over press freedoms in the Obama era led to procedural reforms at the Department of Justice uh, and, and, and other consequences. So right now I'm obliged to say, uh, simply as a matter of personal experience but also as an objective fact, Uh, That nothing the Trump administration has yet done to or with the news media, yet anyway, approaches in seriousness or nature the severity of what we saw under the Obama administration in what many, uh, even on the left, called a concerted war on the press. Uh, That said, there's some uncomfortable aspects about the Trump administration's relationship with the news media thus far, and I'm not really encouraged about the future of its trajectory.
0: Are we getting a uh, fair evaluation of what's happening with the the Trump government, the Trump administration from American media generally? Or is there a really polar opposite shift or a a division where you have the left, you have the right, and you have ambiguity in the middle?
7: It has been increasingly clear, uh, at uh, at least here in Washington, which is where I make my home, uh, right in the District of Columbia, uh, and probably cities like it, New York, Los Angeles, self, elsewhere, uh, that if you fail to respond to Donald Trump with apocalyptic fear, if your reaction to Donald Trump is anything short of apocalyptic fear, you will be read out of polite, civilized society. Um, and the, that which appears so outrageous and untenable and offensive um, in uh, certain precincts, such as the Beltway Press Corps, to a lot of Americans, looks, uh, certainly the electorate that, that placed Donald Trump in the Oval Office looks feisty, uh, looks like Harry Truman-esque, uh, and like he's given him hell to the uh, it's, the The electorate was willing to overlook an awful lot about Donald Trump in order to place him into the Oval Office. I think where they are more inclined to hold the president to account, the electorate, and harshly, has not to do with his treatment of the news media or any of the sort of headlines that we in the Beltway Press Court daily produce about investigations or transcripts or unmasking or what have you. Where the American people, I think, will be inclined to judge the president harshly is uh, where it appears that he cannot advance his legislative agenda and actually accomplish big things for them, the electorate, such as lowering their health care premiums or lowering their taxes or finding or creating new jobs. And I think the failure of the president to enact health care reform or any other significant legislative accomplishment in his first one the days is something uh, the American people uh, look upon with a more jaundiced eye than, than anything else.
2: You're listening to The Roy Green Show, weekends from 2 to 5 on AM 900 CHML.
0: James, two events have caught a great deal of attention, gotten a lot of attention here. Uh, that have happened in Washington over the last week. One is the nuclear option, so-called nuclear option, to seat Justice Neil Gorsuch as uh, Supreme Court Justice. That's just a simple majority victory for us in Canada. We look at that and we say, what's the problem? It was a majority win, and that's the way it goes in politics. And then there's Susan Rice, who was the national security advisor for Barack Obama. Uh, And the question is, did she with intent unmask members of the Trump campaign and conversations they had with foreign officials beginning before Trump was nominated. Can you share some insight on
7: both of those stories for us, please? Sure. Great to be back with you, Roy. These are very disparate events. The use of the nuclear option uh, in the confirmation process for Judge Neil Gorsuch to become Supreme Court Justice Gorsuch uh, reflects uh, the deteriorating uh, political climate in the United States, the, the increasing gridlock, uh, in our in our legislature um, and particularly the inability of a of a candidate for or a nominee for the Supreme Court like Neil Gorsuch to clear a sixty vote threshold is really truly shocking because he is um, an eminently qualified jurist um, and uh, and <laughs> and really there's very little that anyone should have uh, any basis really for opposing him, but we live in an age where everyone here in, in American politics is uh, affected by the digital revolution and by the, the ease with which people can raise their own money and, and air their own commercials and primary and have a primary challenge against the sitting lawmaker without the aid of the national leadership. Um, and so it's difficult for, and we see this in the healthcare care collapse of President Trump's legislation there, the Speaker of the House controlling his fellow Republicans, really there's some who he can't bring along in his flock Everyone's afraid of being primaried, in essence, and the, the digital revolution has made it easier for that to occur, so it contributes toward gridlock. And so uh, you, people are if, – if you're, if you're a Democratic lawmaker and you're presented with a candidate like Neil Gorsuch, who is eminently qualified on his face, um, and who's a former clerk to, the, to uh, two Supreme Court justices, um, and uh, he, whose appointment to the court isn't even going to shift the ideological balance you're probably well advised to just go along and vote for him and wait for the next justice to come along uh, who might really shift the balance of the court. But the Democrats didn't do that. The Republicans then, uh, to to shut off the filibuster by the Democrats, invoked the so-called nuclear option. And this means basically changing the precedent of how the Senate does business to make such uh, even Supreme Court nominations not subject to the filibuster, meaning they can pass with a simple 51 votes. Uh the problem is that it uh, it puts us on a slippery slope here in the United States to a point where uh maybe only a fifty one vote majority is necessary even for legislation, not just uh confirmations. And that would really represent a limiting of uh how much how vigorously the debate can be presented by the minority party, whoever that happens to be. But this many years in the making Democrat for you nominations. Now the nuclear battle has escalated to the Supreme Court, and who knows where it goes from here? On the other issue you mentioned, Roy, which was uh, Susan Rice, uh, President Obama's former national security advisor, uh, being uh, identified in uh, many published reports, including some by Fox News, as having unmasked the identities of uh, Trump associates, perhaps the president himself, uh, as they appeared coded um, behind a code in intelligence reporting. Um, that's a sensational story here. And we're not sure exactly where it's going to play out. uh, But while it does nothing to justify President Trump's still baseless claim that he was subjected to wiretapping by Barack Obama, it does provide some measure of substantiation for um, the the claims by Mr. Trump and his supporters uh, that he was subjected to improper surveillance, maybe not wiretapping, but surveillance of some kind. And I think we're still learning all the facts about this.
0: Yeah, Interesting. You know, 3 o'clock in the morning I wake up, And I start to look at Twitter, and I know there's going to be somebody there who will be tweeting just to me, and I know exactly who it's going to be every morning at 3. (laughs) I promise to knock that (laughs) off. In about 10 seconds, what did you do to Piers Morgan?
7: Well, he got out of line. He criticized Ringo Starr online, and I I gave it to him. I let him have it appropriately. Uh, Especially uh, subjects of the Crown should not be critical ever, of any of the four Beatles, or of Pete Best, for that matter, the original Beatle, who was their drummer before Ringo Starr. And That's how absolutist on this question I am.
0: And you are one of the world's true Beatles experts. So how many versions of uh, one song do you have?
7: Oh, 27. All 27 takes of Strawberry Field. <laughs> to starters, i i not Unlucky like your Tie. Yeah.
0: <laughs> but James? Uh, I uh, I'll, I'll have to go because you know what satellite breaks are like. We have about two seconds. Thank you for the time today. Great talking to you.
6: Thank you. Appreciate
0: All the it. Bye bye.
2: You're listening to The Roy Green Show, weekends from 2 to 5 on AM 900 CHML.
0: Now, last Sunday, Benice Thomas, sister of Canadian Robert Hall, with his fellow Canadian John Ridsdale, were abducted um, in the Philippines by the ISIS affiliated Abu Sayyaf terror group and murdered when no ransom was paid for the Canadians, expressed her public anger at the Canadian government and specifically the Prime Minister for refusing to green light a military rescue mission when the Philippine and U.S. militaries were prepared to work with Canada's special forces to rescue the two men. Ransom was also not allowed. The family were instructed in this manner by Ottawa, and Mr. Trudeau is in the middle of this. Today we have three members of Mr. Hall's family who have more to say about the death of their family member, their loved one. Bernice Thomas, uh, Robert Hall's sister, is back with us. Hi, Bernice.
8: Hi, Roy. Thanks for uh, having us uh, in this conversation.
0: Well, there's more to be said. Uh, There's significantly more to be talked about here that has, I think, a lot of importance, significant importance going forward and may affect other Canadians. So we have to know what happened in the case of your brother. And what may befall and await other Canadians who would be sufficiently unlucky to be kidnapped by a terror group, God knows where. And if you expect the Canadian government to stand up for you, maybe not so much. Gord Bibby is with us as well. Gord got in touch with me last Sunday, and uh, he's Robert Hall's cousin. And uh, Gord, you thank you for taking the time. And, and you were the the force behind the family petition, right?
4: Uh um. No, good. Good to talk with you, Roy, and, and thanks for uh, keeping this issue before the public. Actually, it was my other cousin, Lois Eaton, who actually brought uh, brought the petition, the petition 696 forward. Uh, so I've sort of been uh, supporting her and supporting the family and uh, getting a whole lot of high blood pressure as we go.
0: Yeah, <laughs> and when you look at Ottawa and you look at the Prime Minister, what's your immediate response? If I ask you about Prime Minister's involvement in your in your cousin's fate. What are you going to tell me?
4: Well, I, I think he's taken, frankly, a very cavalier attitude. That there might be strong terms, but uh, I, I, wrote, I wrote our prime minister back last June uh, when I discovered that uh, there were a couple of uh, rescue attempts off, uh, offered and that he turned them down. So I, I basically wrote the prime minister back in June, uh, the same month that uh, my cousin Bob was, uh, was beheaded. And uh, I got a rather polite form letter from a clerk in Mr. Trudeau's office, uh, who basically I guess handles correspondence, and didn't hear anything else until I got a letter from uh, uh, Stephane Dion last November, which was five months after I wrote the letter, and basically extending condolences and assuring <laughs> me that the government of gonna quote here the government of Canada is more committed than ever. To working with the government of the philippines and international partners to pursue those responsible for these senseless murders please be assured that we intend to bring them to justice however long it may take well evidence is to the contrary we we have not seen uh, and this is uh, as per some uh, some great reporting from uh, adrian arsenal and uh, rosemary barton with the cbc uh, and uh, some other journalists we just haven't seen any uh, any progress. Uh, it's interesting now that we have a new uh, Minister of Foreign Affairs, Krista Freeland, and and I thought it, if this was sort of high on the uh, foreign affairs agenda that she would reach out to the family and uh, just maybe bring us up to date on what's going on, but, but there's been nothing.
0: Now, they don't want to talk to you.
4: No, no, they sure don't. They don't
0: want to talk to you because you're a minefield for them, because they know that they mishandled the situation. They know they mishandled an opportunity for your family member, for Mr. Hall, to be released along with Mr. Ridsdale, either through a ransom payment or through a military operation. They had both options, and it was Ottawa that declined both, right?
4: That's
6: correct. Fundamentally.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Let me uh, me say hello to your cousin. Um, Lois Lois Eaton is with us as well. And, uh, Lois, hi.
6: Hello.
0: Thank you for for joining us. I, I, I have to... I have to imagine this is terribly difficult for you, so I admire your family for standing up and challenging Ottawa for what they didn't do and when they could have done a, a lot more and maybe saved the lives of uh, your, your cousin and Mr. Ridsdale. Tell us, please, about the petition. What's the response been, and has the government re- replied?
9: Well, um, the p- petition actually started—and by the way, thank you so much for having the three of us on— And Gordy kind of downplayed his um, role there, but he has really been instrumental in keeping both uh, Bonnie and I kind of um, encouraged when we start flagging and coming up with new ideas and new ways of uh, getting signatures, which was a focus for quite a bit of time there. For the four months it was live. But the way the um, petition came about was originally I was – so appalled that there seemed to be no goal and no plan. And I'm I'm a retired administrator and I just couldn't imagine functioning without a plan, without a goal that you're working towards and then a plan that you actually think is going to achieve your goal. And it it's become evident to me that I don't even think they had the goal of rescue. I don't I don't think that was ever part of what they wanted to achieve. I think in a little bit of a cynical way, and I'm not a cynical person, but it seems that their goal was for uh, political acumen for the prime minister and his fear that doing anything untoward in the Philippines would cause him backlash, caused him to be paralyzed and do nothing. So realizing that there has to be a set of people, a team, that actually knows what they're doing, not retired politicians, not office workers, but people are actually trained in this area of working with terrorists, working with the governments in which terrorists function, and usually those governments are themselves a little bit different than the way we hope ours works. There need to be people who know how to talk with him, who to talk with, what to say, what not to say, and when to say it. We didn't have any of that kind of expertise. It wasn't even, I think, on the horizon that that's what they should be doing. They just kind of paddled along and kept the family in the dark, and that was the other thing I thought <laughs> was absolutely horrific. We were almost um, forbidden to support each other because we weren't to talk with each other. Well, wait, 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 just, we, just, just
0: a sec. Lois, Lois, you weren't to talk to each other?
9: Well, we weren't to communicate with each other about anything to do with the, the kidnapping. And so when I reached out to um, Bonnie and Trudy, my cousins, it it was almost like fearful that we couldn't really say anything to each other because the government had said, don't put any of this in writing, don't talk about it. So I I found that really harsh because I couldn't find anything out and I was terrified for my cousin yeah. and I couldn't support my. My cousins, I'm knowing what they must be going through. I it, it was just incredible. So stressful.
0: to all three of you then what, what Ottawa was doing was stage managing everything. And they were stage managing you. they were stage man- stage managing as much as they could. <laughs> and when it came to making the decision to save the two Canadians, that's when they just abdicated left uh, and, yeah. and left you on your, to your own devices. We're, we're, then we're no longer here then we we've done all we can and uh, we'll do the best we can next time.
9: So it was out of that, Roy, that I thought, well, I have to do something. I'm somebody that feels, um, when I, I, I'm i feeling frustrated or, or concerned about something, I research what can be done, and then I get on with it. And so I thought, well, maybe a petition would help. Right. So I had to start at and it was not a wildly successful undertaking. And I was talking to the MP for our riding at a Fair Vote Canada meeting that he had, and Gord John said, I'll sponsor you. Change.org is not the way to go for political um, petitions. It works better. That works better for um, corporations. And he said, but I'll sponsor one for you. So he immediately connected me with Christine Ackerman, his uh, legislative assistant, right. and they were so helpful. You were so helpful.
0: Let me so take a angry. let me take a quick break here, Lois. I, do, I have to do that, and then when we come back, what yes. I'd like you to do is just tell us what needs to be said. You know, okay. I have questions, but more importantly than more important than my questions is that you have an opportunity to say what the family needs, believes okay. needs to be said. So we'll do that, and then if there's time for any questions I have, then I'll, I'll put those in as well.
2: You're listening to the Roy Green Show, weekends from two to five on AM nine hundred CHML.
0: Bernice Thomas is the sister of uh, Robert Hall. Gord Bibby and Lois Eaton are cousins of Mr. Hall. And we're talking about how the uh, abduction of Robert Hall and John Ridsdale ended in tragedy when there were options for the Canadian government to undertake, and they did not. And you remember um, Lee Humphrey was with us last weekend with Bernice um, Thomas. and Mr. Humphrey, who is an expert on international security and uh, works with corporations globally, to set up security, told us that the uh, the military of the Philippines had isolated the area where the Abu Sayyaf group that was holding Mr. Hall and Mr. Ridsdale, they'd isolated that group so that the special forces could get in there effectively, efficiently, and hopefully get Mr. Hall and Mr. Ridsdale out alive and well. Uh, and the Philippine military had lost about 50 members of their military doing that, uh, conducting that mission. And the Americans were prepared to help. The Philippine uh, military was prepared to help. JTF two or um, uh, special forces operators from Canada were there, ready to go. And the Prime Minister of Canada did nothing. Nothing. So uh, Benice and Gordon Lois, what needs to be said? What? What? What do you want the people of Canada to know? That. That really needs to be said. So uh, any of you, please start and just share well, with us.
9: We, we, one of the things we absolutely have to have is a plan, and I mentioned that earlier. If we don't have a, a plan, the Canadians who are still in captivity have no hope, and future Canadians have no hope. And what does that plan need to look like? Well, we need a dedicated team and a plan ready to go. So we're not waiting three weeks to six months to create a plan. And that was something that Lee mentioned last week. And that's really shocking to realize that. Secondly, we need an investigation and inquiry into what has already happened. That's probably the best way to really get to the bottom of this. Since the government has to initiate it, it may be unlikely to have that. But it really needs to be an independent inquiry, not one through the RCMP or through our government, so that we can find out what happened and build on the things we need to improve on. Thirdly, my petition is going to go to the floor of the House of Commons. And so if people want to write to their MPs and say, when this is, is presented, we really want you to make a statement about it. It is not something we want to just slide off to the side. And I won't know exactly when it's going to go to the floor. It closed March 29th. And I received an email from Christine Ackerman saying that she would let me know as soon as it came from um, the government to gord to sign and once he signs it then i'll know when it is going to be presented
3: okay. uh,
9: those are the things to my way of thinking i think gordy has a, a pretty good handle right. on what needs to be done as well
6: Gord,
4: well roy i think, I think uh it's it's impossible impossible to expect that uh uh Prime Minister Trudeau's government are going to uh apologize or or speak out in any way as you say they're uh, they're trying to shut our doors. Uh so I think if, if Bob and John's death are to mean anything, it's that uh, we can advance uh what Lois was talking about so that the the government of Canada does have uh some contingency in place when uh when these type of things, and and uh, I know the uh, Mitch Potter and his team at the Toronto Star wrote an excellent <laughs> series of seven articles back at, towards the end of last year, uh, basically chronicling how uh, governments of all political stripes uh, over the years have been uh, less than. Uh, perfect in in handling hostage-taking incidences, so I I think it's something that needs to be addressed.
0: Well, what we have, really, we have political cowardice, and it's not just Ottawa. It's a lot of governments. They don't know what to do, so they do nothing.
4: Exactly. Yeah, and, and this is, uh, you know, I just want to scream. I mean,
0: it's... Yeah, <laughs> it's not, it's only they don't know what to do. We know what needs to be done. We have some of the best special forces um, professionals in the world. You talk to people in the militaries of the world, they'll tell you, like, for example, JTF-2, Joint Task Force 2, one of the top three or four special forces units in the world, and they were ready to go. Bernice, what uh, what needs to be added from your perspective?
8: Well, I think um, both Gordon Lewis have talked uh, most of what needs to happen, but I mean, I'm I'm asking Canadians, anybody that hears this, to pick up the phone, write your MP, do both. Um, there has to be um, an, as Lois and Gord have both reiterated, an independent investigation yeah. into what went wrong here. Why was there a lack of political will? We need questions answered, not fielded, not deflected, no condescending, no platitudes. We just simply need, need answers uh, so that our family can have some closure, but also to, to, to launch the uh, creation of a cadre of, of, of people that are ready to go. This is their dedicated job mm-hmm. to be up-to-date, knowledgeable on hostage takings, kidnappings, so that when this does happen we can react immediately right. um, to avert you know another family having to deal with um just the, the 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 continuous nightmare that this is
0: and they've done nothing and they clearly have no plans going forward if a, another situation were to recur today i doubt they'd have any plans to go forward and the prime minister would do what he's done before which is absolutely nothing and a government that is, well, they're out of their depth. They, uh, and, and they really, you're right. They need to put together a team of experts and then let them do their job and get out of the way. And then your job as the government is to support your experts. Thank you, uh, Gord, Lois, uh, Bonis. We have, uh, Bonice, I'm sorry, we have a couple of seconds. What's the petition number?
9: It's 696 and it's closed, but we received a sufficient number of signatures. Okay. And um, that was a full family effort. All across Canada, all right. and when it goes to the um, House of Commons, when Gord Johns, who's our, my MP here, yeah. when he presents that, I really hope that people are encouraging their MPs to give it the response it needs, so that it doesn't die in Parliament. Well,
0: we'll stay in touch, and we'll we'll get there. to we'll get together again when that happens, and we'll apply as much pressure as we can. Bernice, Lois, Gord, take good care, and we'll talk soon. Thank,
2: thank you. Thank you again very much. Much.
0: Thanks so much. Bye bye.
2: The Roy Green Show, weekends from 2 to 5 on AM 900 CHML.